readers, listeners, welcome to the Fox page where we dive deep into the very best books. You have to laugh because it seems like some of the episodes that are most popular with all of you listeners are the episodes where in fact you don't have to have read anything before listening. Uh, if that's you, welcome. So glad you're here. I don't care if you read or not. I just uh, hope you're enjoying what you're listening to. So. Um, today we're going to be talking about a kind of a unique situation. It's kind of an interesting situation for me. Emma Klein's The Guest is one of these books that's getting a lot of buzz right now. And I had not read The Girls, which was the other book that she wrote. And I have to say, I was not particularly interested in Emma Klein until I started noticing thanks to my daughter, uh, that there is this real kind of lumping together of Eve Babbitts, Emma Klein, and Joan Didion. Less less so Joan Didion, but certainly the first two. And I was like, dude, any, um, you know, anybody who's being lumped in with Eve Babbitts and Joan Didion, like, let me at it. And honestly, I started reading The Guest, and I was so, I was, I was so frustrated. And I was so um, just really like off put and I will say that it is not in the spirit of the Fox page to um you know just bring a book out here so I can just like shit on it but I will say that this was not a book that I loved it was not oddly it was a book that I was very compelled to finish I was really interested in how she was going to do this um, which was an interesting thing for me. Oftentimes, um, it is not the plight of the character that makes me read on, and it's not sort of like, how is the author going to end this, and how are we going to wrap things up plot-wise? But in this case, I just was like, I don't understand. Like, is she just going to sustain this, and, and what's going to happen at the end, and how is she going to close it? I had heard that the ending was unsatisfying for certain people. I actually thought the ending was one of the best parts of the book. Um, but aside from the fact that I was like a little bit, um, oh, I was just kind of dismayed. I mean, honestly, it, it was just a, it was a bummer. And uh, I listened to a couple of interviews too with Emma Klein and um, didn't feel a lot better about the book and started thinking a lot about how, especially on book talk, which is kind of um, a, a vein of TikTok, on how uh, this young writer is being lumped in with Eve Babbitts. And I honestly just like couldn't rest until I had come up with a uh, with a lecture for you all about um, uh, what I can't, I'm, I've blocked her name, Emma. Emma Klein and Eve Babbitts and Joan Didion. So we're gonna dive in to a little bit of an analysis that actually turned out to be so fruitful and so interesting to me, both as a reader and also as a Californian and as a woman. And, um, you know, as someone who's really invested in prose and also really invested with the way that young women uh, see themselves in literature. I think that was the most alarming thing to me is thinking that young women, uh, much in the way that young women go through kind of like a Sylvia Plath, uh, you know, kind of period, or even a Virginia Woolf period. I mean, I think there are, there are certain writers that really resonate with young women and help them sort of figure out who they're going to be in the world and help them navigate the world outside of their experience. Joan Didion is certainly one of those people. Not only is she an incredible writer, but she's become, you know, a style icon and, and someone with an incredible cult following. So I, I think there is this sense in, in these young women writers, in select young women writers, where people are really sort of projecting themselves onto these women and trying to sort of figure out how to understand the world through the prose of these women, which again was part of the reason why I was a bit alarmed after I read The Guest by Emma Klein. So part of what I want to do today here is talk about the, the different ways that those three writers have very much in common. Um, and I think ultimately what I'm trying to do here is convince you that you should go read uh, Eve Babbitt's. Really, I'm going to just put the argument right up straight, right at the front. Um, you know, read Emma Klein for sure if you want to, but when you're lumping the two of them together uh, or you see other people do, keep in mind that, that Emma Klein and Eve Babbitts are very, very different beasts when it comes to uh, the important aspects of their writing. We're going to talk first about the structure of each of three novels. So these are the novels that, that um, Emma Klein's The Guest made me think of, and they're kind of the books that these uh, other two writers are best known for. So we're going to look at The Guest in comparison with Eve Babbitt's uh, Slow Days, Fast Company, 
um, which isn't exactly a novel, but that's part of the beauty of it. Um, it, it it's fairly close to a novel, and Eve Babbitts has lots of nonfiction, as does Joan Didion. So um, I wanted to make sure that I was comparing apples to apples here. So we'll be looking at Emma Klein's The Guest, Eve Babbitt's uh, Slow Days Fast Company, and then of course we'll be looking at Joan Didion's seminal Play It As It Lays. Uh, Play It As It Lays is her first novel, actually, sorry, it's not her first novel, that was Run River, which I actually thought was better. It was about Sacramento, it's amazing. Um, Play It As It Lays is not my favorite Joan Didion, in fact, it's not even like my top three of her novels. I really love Book of Common Prayer, uh, I really love uh, Democracy, I really love After Henry. There are a bunch of, After Henry is um, nonfiction, but there are a bunch of um, sort of lesser Didion that I think are better than, than some of the kind of best known. But Play It As It Lays is an incredible accomplishment, and I want to take a look at those three novels. They have so much in common, so all three of them are really uh, invested in this kind of idea of a place. And in the case of Didion and Babbitts, it's Los Angeles for both of them. And uh, with Emma Klein, it is the Hamptons. Uh, I think it's East Hampton where she is. So um, we have this kind of split because they're not all three set in Los Angeles. That would just be like ultra tidy. But there is so much in common with kind of Hollywood and kind of the social stratum in which Babbitts and Didion are, are um, you know, sort of functioning that is in common with the world uh, that, that Emma Klein is taking a close look at in the East Hamptons. This is very privileged, very moneyed people. But in all cases, um, the women are looking at sort of a, a few different layers of the social fabric. Uh, a tiny bit less so in Didion. Everyone there is kind of, you know, upper crusty Hollywood, um, you know, producers and that sort of thing. But but certainly uh, in Babbitts and also in uh, uh, Emma Klein, you do have a little more kind of, um, you know, venturing into different uh you know, social milieu. But in all three of these cases, you're talking about, you know, very sort of upper crusty, uh, you know, summary kind of settings. Uh, in fact, Emma Klein, it's all over the course of one week, and it is at the end of August, right up to Labor Day. So you certainly have a summary feel, partly by dint of these um, other two books just simply being set in Los Angeles. But then um, it, they do all have kind of a same, um, you know, sense of summertime and a sense of heat and a sense of sunshine and a sense of things being overly bright. There are lots of swimming pools and lots of ocean in, in all of these books. So, but more importantly, in each of them, we have a young woman uh, who's sort of at the center of this book. And that young woman is someone who is relatively independent, not to say totally lonely and alienated, which, um, you know, both of those things things are uh, sort of, uh, you know, it's a thin line in these women's cases, in the protagonist's cases, between loneliness and independence or alienation and independence. Something else that they all share is that each of them is invested in, in sort of one man, but each of them have these, uh, the, the, the novels are very much taken up with this kind of episodic structure where each of these women, um, who is young, they're all in their 20s, um, and they all are having various different sexual experiences with various different men. So in, in many ways, they, they follow kind of the same pattern in that each of them has these different forays with these different men. So uh, a third thing that they all have in common is the fact that all of them have quite a bit of drug use in them, not to say abuse. And um, they take kind of different tacks when it comes to the drug use. And that is something that um, we're going to take a look at because their, um, both their use of these substances and then also their attitude toward them really says very much about the sort of different, um, you know, emphases that these books are putting forward. Again, another reason why I'm slightly worried about, um, you know, the 20-year-old that's being portrayed in 2023. That is a perfect segue into one of the ways in which these three books are very different. So you have, um, you know, the, the guest came out, I think, in 2023, maybe, maybe 2022. Um, I'm doing this without notes today. I'm just, just doing, I'm just riffing, I'm going. So um, I won't, hopefully I won't say anything that's just like wrong, but I'm, I'm fairly certain it was 2023, if not 2022. Um, Play It As It Lays was published, wow, 
now I'm getting myself into a little bit of hot water. 70, 1970. Um, I'm going to go back and check that, make sure that's correct. And I believe that Slow Days Fast Company came out in 72. So both um, Play It As It Lays and Slow Days Fast Company are very much invested in the end of the 60s and the early 70s. And they're both in Los Angeles. So you have kind of a, um, a similar historical moment. And that's actually very important. In The Guest, it is 2023. Um, you know, the novel seems to, you know, be concerned with a week that is in this decade. There's not a, a strong sense of this being, you know, the early 2020s. Whereas in both the Didion and the Babbitts, you really do have a strong sense of a, of a political environment, um, certainly in the in the Didion, but a sense of, um, of of things really coming apart and a sense of the the sort of fabric of the United States being really challenged in some different ways. And in um, Didion, there's a lot of concern for this, and you have throughout the entire work, you have this real sense of of, of things not going well. And the book does span from New York City to Nevada to uh, California. So in Play It As It Lays, you have this real concern for kind of um, all of American humanity. And the same thing a little bit in um, in the Babbitts, in Slow Days, Fast Company, she's certainly less concerned, but you definitely have a sense of this as being set in a certain moment. Um, this is probably a good time to uh, take a quick break and let you know that Didion, the Didion and Babbitts comparison has been around forever. And I loved that in the uh, introduction to uh, one of her books, uh, Eve Babbitt said something like she was thanking, or it was the acknowledgments, she was thanking the Didion Duns, who is Joan Didion and John Dunn. She thanked them for essentially being the LA residents that Eve Babbitt's did not have to be. Joan Didion and John Dunn, who were not native to Los Angeles, Didion is from Sacramento, which is much more conservative, and John Dunn uh, is from the Northeast. You have them as these sort of, um, sort of moralizers. You have them as people who are saying everything that's happening in Los Angeles at the end of the 60s and early 70s is not great. And there is all sorts of, um, you know, entropy and things are falling apart and the center will not hold and everything is really just going to shit. Whereas Eve Babbitt is just enjoying herself. So there's this nice kind of interplay that everyone acknowledged, which is that Eve Babbitt and Joan Didion were portraying, you know, relatively independent young women who were not married and not sort of happily domesticated. And yet, uh, in Didion's case, this woman is, is, is very unhappy in that situation, whereas Eve Babbitt seems to really thrive uh, in, a, uh, in a milieu that is allowing for lots of drugs and lots of sex and lots of rock and roll, really. So you have uh, this very clear sense of the two California novels as being heavily sort of set at the end of the 60s, early 70s, whereas the Klein novel is kind of floating in its own world and is a little bit less tethered to uh, a certain era certainly in terms of politics and sort of the wider the wider world. Okay, so now that we have kind of an overview of these three novels and we have talked a bit about what they all share, this idea of an independent woman, the idea of um, substances, uh, you know, drugs um, and drinking certainly being a very important part of, you know, from start to finish of all three of these, and lots of sexual exploration and this idea of young women who um, are, are engaging in a lot of different sexual experiences with different men, um, all to sort of happier and less happier degrees. But the structure of the novels, I think, is one way to really appreciate the, the, the different, um, I mean, honestly, I think it's going to just help you understand why, in part, with the guest, I just was like, ugh. Like, I just, I mean, that was maybe a little bit strong, but I, I was just... Well, there's a certain amount of repetition in The Guest, and because I had read The Didion and The Babbitts, and I have a template in my mind for this kind of, uh, you know, this kind of novel with this kind of, you know, drug-using, very beautiful young woman who is engaging in different sexual exploration, I, I had a, um, you know, cer certain expectations for the complexity maybe in the structure or the richness of the prose and you do get complexity and richness in both Babbitts and Didion, and I just didn't see it in the guest. So 
in the guest, we have a young woman named Alex, and we have this week-long trajectory. She is in the Hamptons. We don't really have much information about her backstory. The one thing that comes up again and again and again is that this guy, Dom, is after her. And we're not really sure why until some point in the novel. And I'm not going to spoil everything for you, but um, you have... Alex, who is out, she's out east, uh, in East Hampton, I believe, with this guy named Simon, and essentially some bad things happen, and he um, says, you know, you're no more welcome here, but she gets it in her head that instead of going back to the city, she is going to hang out and um, come back to his Labor Day party. So then we have this kind of episodic, um, you know, sexual adventures that are all from the beginning, from the first page, she's using pills and she's drinking a lot. Um, I think they're just painkillers. And it's not excessive, you know, she doesn't seem like out of her mind in, in most of these cases. And yet you do start to start to wonder a little bit. So and then at the, um, you know, the, the, the whole trajectory is her kind of moving through a couple of different, um, you know, experiences with different people, not all of them sexual and not all of them men, but she has these kind of adventures as she tries to stay in the Hamptons with no money for a week at, with the goal of going back to Simon's party. And again, um, you have the threat of this Dom guy the whole time. So it, it, it's over the course of one week. It's all very, you know, I guess you could argue that these are some nice classical unities in that um, classical unities coming from drama, you know, back in Greece, like Aristophanes or um, Euripides, those kinds of people. And in those cases, it had to be three acts. It had to all happen within 24 hours and it had to happen in the same space. So like everything happened in the forum or everything happened on the island or whatever it was. And, and you have some of those unities, but in this case, um, they I, I just didn't, they, they didn't quite add enough. And oftentimes having a story that is simply told chronologically, chrono chronology, if you're a writer, chronology is your friend. So I don't have a problem with, um, with Emma Klein having written this in chronological order. It's a very straightforward third person narrator who is telling us what Alex is doing um, predominantly with Simon in mind and always with the threat of Dom. So it's, it's a very kind of straightforward situation. And that was part of my thinking. I was like, is this what we're gonna get for, I think it's probably what, 250 pages? the standard novel is. Um, it felt kind of like a standard novel length. It was just very sort of straightforward. And I think when we look at these next two books, you'll have a sense of um, of what maybe my expectations might have been or how cool these other models that are very similar are. So the next one I want to look at is Slow Day's Fast Company because the, the structure is so incredible. So right from the beginning, Eve Babbitts tells us that what she's writing here is a love story, but she doesn't expect it to go well. So, you know, don't have that expectation in mind. And essentially that the, she is going to write this letter, this, this kind of love, you know, manuscript for this person that she is in love with and the person is not paying attention to her and won't read what she writes unless she has kind of mentions of him and things that will be interesting to him throughout. So essentially she tells us at the beginning in this incredibly um, funny and heartfelt and real and, and, and you know, pathetic in the best way, like meaning it, it you know, it, it uh, brings up some pathos for us. This very kind of um, upfront vulnerable letter about how she's going to tell us all of these different tales and intermixed, she's going to have these italicized chunks that are really um, addressed to this lover. So we have much the same sort of episodic thing that we have in the Emma Klein, in that we have um, we have Eve Babbitts. They're separated into much more kind of um, like discrete chapters. Each has a title. Um, each does have an italicized part that is so charming, um, where she's addressing this person who is not named. We don't know who this person is. And throughout the book, she's mentioning several different men that she's with. There's someone named Frank D. There's an Irish writer from San Francisco. There is somebody named Larry. Uh, there, there are all sorts of different people. And there's one guy named Graham, who seems to be kind of um, someone she's still pining after. There's a guy named Sean. There are all these different people who she is with. And um, they, but they're all kind of 
you know, you have this idea that it's all in the auspices of making this this other person jealous. It's such a great structure because it's loose and it allows for this kind of episodic thing, but it's very smart too. It also allows for much more range. So we have, um, you know, adventures that happened to her when she was younger, things that happened to her when she's older. We move from Rome um, to Mexico to Bakersfield to to Hatchapi, to Taos. So you have all of these different, um, this sort of breadth that the guest just does not have. I, I will say, um, and there are definitely some good things to say about the guest, and I will get there um, a bit later. And she does, there's some really great evocation of, um, of, of social class and of um, like some of the really awful kind of milieu that, that she's kind of, I think, you know, justifiably sort of repelled by, but also really wanting to be part of it, which is problematic, uh, like very invested in, in becoming part of it. Whereas Eve Babbitts, I think, is a little more savvy. Uh, she, Eve Babbitts was born in Hollywood and went to Hollywood High School. And I think, um, was disillusioned appropriately when she was very, very young. She had this super interesting um, thesis that she brings up. So one of the things Eve Babbitts is known for are these incredible aphorisms. So she'll say just literally they're like three on a page. It's incredible. These kind of truisms that are so funny and so like true that I just like, I literally could devote all of the Fox page just to uh, like, like an Eve a day a Babbitt's a day, because these things are so wise and so funny. One of them is this kind of theory that she has that back in the day, um, you know, all of the kind of the people who were sort of, uh, you know, um, like objectively slash uh, stereotypically beautiful all went out to Hollywood in order to be in the movies at the very beginning, you know, in the early 20th century. And um, that all the really smart people stayed in the East Coast to do all the banking. And that's why you have places like Hollywood High School where literally everyone is beautiful. So if you have ever been to Los Angeles and you've ever gone to some of these places like Erewhon, which is a grocery store, or the Whole Foods in, um, in uh, Santa Monica, I mean, these places, literally, you feel like you're in a movie set because everyone is so effortlessly beautiful. I mean... There are other reasons for this, but that was a little aside that I found very interesting on the part of Babbitt's. It's, I mean, are we offended for the East Coast? No, no, those people get to be smart. I mean, which is better, really? I mean, I think it's pretty clear. We all wanna be smart. Um, okay, back to the task at hand here. So Slow Days Fast Company has this incredibly interesting, incredibly flexible, um, but also very original and interesting structure where we have the idea of this, this kind of love letter that she is writing. It, it, it's a love letter to the man. It's also absolutely a love letter to Los Angeles. And she's very upfront about the idea that this is a love letter to Los Angeles, which again adds this whole layer of value. Um, and she's also very clear about the shortcomings of Los Angeles, which is awesome. She's very vulnerable in the book in lots of ways. Um, we see the, the Emma Klein protagonist also as being vulnerable, but not in like a self-knowing, um, you know, self-aware way, but more in, in sort of this closed off claustrophobic, like train wreck kind of way. So you have um, in, in Slow Days Fast Company, you have this really interesting structure. So the third case, Play It As It Lays, um, I saved that for last because it has arguably the most complex structure. So I think what people remember when they um, when they think of Play It As It Lays is Mariah and, um, and, and sort of the nihilism. Oh my gosh, guys, big thing. For those of you who have listened to any other, um, any other Foxed Page uh, podcast where I have mentioned nihilism, I have, been I have been pronouncing it incorrectly my entire life. I don't know who to blame that on. Maybe I'll blame that on, uh, I don't know. Actually, I'm not gonna blame it on anyone. I'm, I'll blame it on myself. It is nihilism. Um, so there is a lot of nihilism that we have in Play It As It Lays, but it's it's a much broader and much wider um, sort of scope. So I think people will remember Mariah and the nihilism and the darkness and the drug use and, and sort of like, yuck. Like you, you do have a sense of the book as being very dark, 
But it is a classic for a reason, and the reason is because the structure is incredible and the prose is incredible. And also, I believe it's a, it's a classic because it has, it, it's a very good encapsulation of that period in time, of, of Hollywood and of the shortcomings and, and of, of the way that women were treated so badly. Both Eve Babbitt's and Didion are very clear about women's issues. And I think both of those novels, I mean, Didion is a little harder to argue with this exact novel. But Eve Babbitt's, it's an absolute feminist treatise. I mean, she has some of these aphorisms um, that I mentioned earlier have to do with how difficult it is to be a woman. At one point, she talks about all the really beautiful waitresses in this one, I don't know if it's like the polo lounge or if it's ports or wherever this is, um, but it's some storied Los Angeles restaurant. And she hopes that these beautiful waitresses are going to poison all of the gross men in there who are making their crude remarks and all of their sweethearts and honeys and whatnot, um, which is so prescient because, you know, this is 1970. Not that people didn't know this then, but she was speaking out against stuff that later, I mean, literally only recently, has, has really become a national conversation. Okay, um, but back to Dinian and this incredibly complex structure that she has. So we have some similarities. We have Mariah at the beginning, and she is concerned um, with sort of one love. She um, was married to someone when she lived in New York, and then she is married to a man named Carter. And she and Carter have a four-year-old child, and um, it turns out she is pregnant. She doesn't actually know if it's Carter's child or this other uh, less good one who is this lover that she's had recently. So you have, um, much like in the Emma Klein book where we have our protagonist, Alex, who's with this guy, Simon, you have this Mariah character who's very invested in this one person. Also the same way that the Babbitt's protagonist is interested in this one unnamed lover to whom the whole novel is addressed. But in Didion, um, you have, again, the same kind of episodic stuff where you have her um, with several different lovers. At one point, she goes and has an abortion. At one point, there's, um, a, you know, there's a lot of stuff about her driving in Los Angeles, a lot of really beautiful stuff about Los Angeles as a whole. Um, but you have, it, it, you know, honestly, I could talk for hours and hours about the foliage. And Emma Klein does some great foliage. She does some very good descriptions of the ocean and a sense of place in the East, um, but I will still say does not hold a candle to uh, the way that Eve Babbitts talks about jacarandas. It's just, she's unbelievable. I mean, she's just so, so good. Or the Santa Anas or, um, you know, these other sort of natural forces that are so predominant in Los Angeles. But back to uh, our Joan Didion structure. The structure itself, it begins with a paragraph that, I mean, a chapter that is told from the first person perspective from Mariah. Then we have three chapters that are told in the first person perspective from three of the kind of um, ensemble characters. They're not minor characters, but they're not Mariah. You have Mariah, then you have these three characters, and then it shifts into a third person narration. So. If you heard um, me talk about narration and point of view in podcasts, you'll know that I like a shifting narrator if it's consistent all the way throughout. I think there's lots of logic to that. Um, sometimes it can feel like a bit of a cheat, but in lots of ways it does give us a very, um, you know, it, it allows for us to enter into the minds of many different people. And so we can form kind of a complete picture of everyone and all of their, you know, complementary perspectives on one another, on each other. Quick tip, one another is if it's two people, each other is if it's many people. So like if you were gonna say, hey, let's get together and have coffee, I wanna, you know, we can hang out with one another, that's a one-on-one -on -one thing. But each other is like, hey guys, we should all get coffee, we can hang out with each other. Quick little tip for you. Um, but you have these these four first-person chapters, and then it gives way to this third-person narration. I think it works actually well. I think, I mean, you can break any rules you want if you can get away with them, and Didion is very good at breaking rules and getting away with them. But even this idea that she is breaking rules and has this very sort of complex structure is really speaking to the ways in which her the, the scope of the novel and the voices in the novel and the and the sort of texture of the novel to my mind is, is much more complicated and much more interesting and much broader and richer and deeper than um emma klein 
So I want to wrap up this this kind of discussion of the structure of these three books by saying that um, the, 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 the structures are very different, obviously. You have like a very straightforward, week-long, chronological third-person narrator with uh, Emma Klein's The Guest. With Eve Babbitt's, you have this um, really textured, uh, you know, sort of almost like a short story collection, but with this incredible cohesion and this incredible sense the whole time that, you know, you're sort of remembering that she's recounting all of these episodes um, that are full of joy and love and fun with these other men in large part to make this um, you know the 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 uh, recipient of this manuscript to make this other person jealous so it sort of adds a whole layer of uh, you know of, of of nuance in in a way that is I just think it's just genius so there's a complexity there that we simply don't have in the guest and then play it as it lays. Again, you have the structure that is that is very uh, it's very complicated, and and I think is doing very important things with its complexity. So the thing that I will come back to is that there is a certain nihilism. We're saying nihilism now, and not nihilism. Um, there is a certain sort of nihilism and despair, and a kind of um, narrowing of life and possibilities in the guest. And in some ways, you have the same sort of thing happening and play it as it lays. It doesn't happen in Eve Babbitt's because Babbitt's is the one who's having fun in the midst of everything. And Joan Didion is the one who's seeing, um, you know, the darkness and the despair. So in some ways, Emma Klein is closer to Didion in terms of tone. Again, this kind of despair and this kind of almost claustrophobic sense of like nowhere to go. You've burned all the bridges. Um, you know, really, you're, you're, uh, oh, and an important thing, and you know this right from the beginning of Play It As It Lays, is that uh, Mariah is writing from a mental institution. She's writing from a mental hospital in Los Angeles. So you do have a frame there um, in, in sort of the same way with the guest, where the whole thing comes full circle in some ways, uh, although the ending is, um, the ending is more hopeful in the Didion. And if your ending is more hopeful, in Play It As It Lays, then I think that says something about the level of nihilism and, and despair and narrowing and claustrophobia in The Guest. So um, I, I want to just kind of pull back a little bit and, and bring this whole thing full circle myself, which is that um, this idea of young women lumping these three writers together, I think in some ways makes lots of sense. There are lots of commonalities in in the sort of in this mix here, and and all of it is compelling. But if we're thinking about these uh, writers who are all writing about women in their young twenties, their young adulthood, where women are really sort of identifying with them and 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 using them as ways to sort of learn how to navigate the world, or at least are being very sort of absorbed in these worlds and finding them fascinating, um, I would rather frankly, have everybody reading the Eve Babbitts. And we're going to go on and talk some more on the sense of place and the general tone that will add to my argument. Um, but I will say, even just given the structure, if you're going to read about someone in her 20s, um, there just is a lot um, more interesting prose and a lot more interesting structure than you will get in The Guest. All of that said, I also will remind you that I finished The Guest. I mean, I kind of couldn't tear myself away. Partially, I was wanting to just like kind of like get it over with, <laughs> but also um, I, I was I was genuinely curious. It wasn't that I was invested in like the 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 outcome of this. I wasn't concerned necessarily about Alex. I didn't feel for her, but I was. It was it was like a car crash, like watching a train wreck. You know, like I I couldn't look away. I was rubbernecking. Um, so I there are lots of things that I think uh, explain why the guest is popular, but my sense is that uh, don't be too quick to lump these all together or lump them together uh, in some sort of recommendation in your mind, and then read the Babbitts, and then read the Didion, and then maybe read the Guest. Okay, I wanna move on and talk a little bit about the quality of prose in these three books. And uh, you all know how much uh, sort of I invest in the first sentence and in the first paragraph of any given book. I think that um, it's very telling that even the first sentences of these books, of these three books, is kind of enough to really give us a sense of, of, of the disparity um, in terms of richness and complexity and, and sort of um, 
you know how much you're gonna get out of this prose. So I'm gonna begin um, with Emma Klein. It's a beautiful cover. I mean, I just like who who doesn't want to read that book? Although having read it, I'm looking at that hand and I'm like, ooh, like what it what is she dead? Like it's like it looks like that. Um, if you can't picture it, the hand it's this really bright lime green with really bright blue and the hand. Um, it could either be a hand, it's kind of palm up. It could either be like reaching out for something, like maybe help, or uh, it could literally be empty and dead. Up to you, up to you. Okay, but we're gonna read the very first line of this novel to get a sense of the, uh, of the prose. This was August. The ocean was warm and warmer every day. So I, I will be the first to say that Emma Klein's writing is fine. It's totally good. Like there's nothing, there were a couple of things. There were a couple, very minor things um, that, I, that I did in fact mark. But for the most part, the prose was, it was good. It was clear and it, you know, she doesn't get in her own way and they're not a lot of like overwrought metaphors. Like it's, she's, she's, the writing is very good. The writing is good. I think her use of description um, when she describes people, I think her choice of detail is excellent. She's really, the writing itself is great. It's very stripped down and kind of numb in a way that I think is very telling. It's very appropriate that our third person narrator here is um, very kind of distant and I think numb. I think numb might not be a bad word. I'm gonna repeat that first sentence. This was August. The ocean was warm and warmer every day. So um, again, I think that's great. Emma Klein also has this really nice um, motif with water. There's a lot of water in this book. Um, this Alex is like swimming every chance she gets. Um, and whether it's in a gross swimming pool or whether it's in a pristine swimming pool or whether it's the ocean, um, you always have a sense of these watery uh, expeditions as you know having to do with cleansing or rebirth or literally like amniotic fluid kind of a thing. I mean, there's a lot of really beautiful use of water throughout the entire novel. So that is something I can really compliment. So um, this was August. I can now repeat it without looking. Uh, this was August. That's the first line of the book. In fact, that line that I read, the ocean was warm, getting warmer every day. And I was just paraphrasing in case I made a mistake there. Um, that's the whole first paragraph. And, and you do have, again, this, this, the prose is very spare and very straightforward. So now we are moving on um, to uh, the Joan Didion play it as it lays from 1970. Um, it's interesting. I'm actually, I'm gonna, I was gonna skip over the first sentence, but I'm gonna read it here because it does add to the complexity. Um, the first sentence of play it as it lays famously is, what makes Iago evil? Some people ask, I never ask. So Didion came under quite a bit of fire because young Mariah, Mariah is not particularly educated and she's not particularly um, someone who is attending Shakespeare, uh, you know, productions in Los Angeles. And she is not someone who, uh, I don't think she, she was a model in New York City. I don't, I'm not sure that she did a lot of Shakespeare in her education. So this question of what makes Iago evil, some people ask, I never ask. Um, people found that a bit of a strange foot to begin on because it doesn't quite gel with the rest of the information we have about Mariah. However, this book is wildly successful and has been a touchstone for many, many people and is incredibly well done. And she gets away with that kind of, um, you know, a slight sort of jarring detail that we are given here because the rest of it is so strong. But listen to this next, uh, this next sentence, which in some ways, that's one paragraph, the one about Iago. It's, it's three, well, it's two very short sentences. Then we get into a much longer uh, paragraph that, in, it, to my mind, is kind of the, the true start of the book. Which is, I mean, that is a hot take, people, because a lot of people really dig into this Iago thing and the nature of good and evil. And yes, this whole book is about the nature of good and evil. But my sense is that we know that with this next sentence, which is actually amazing. Okay, so this is the second paragraph after this very short paragraph in Play It As It Lays. Another example, one which springs to mind because Mrs. Burstein saw a pygmy rattler in the artichoke garden this morning and has been intractable ever since. I never ask about snakes. 
So I love this. So I think that she could have gotten rid of the Iago thing and, and just gone to this snake thing. Um, those of you who have listened to the podcast know that um, anytime you hear about a snake or an apple or a tree, you really need to think of the Garden of Eden. You need to think about, um, you know, the, the fruit of knowledge. You need to think about the fact that when they ate from that fruit of knowledge, that what they realized was that they were naked and that they were not uh, innocent and that they had, you know, th that there was some sort of, there was something wrong with them. They were not born um, with goodness. So right away, you have this vision of snakes and this idea of snakes repeats throughout um, in a very beautiful motif throughout play it as it lays and in fact throughout a lot of didion um, but this idea of a pygmy so mrs burstein saw a pygmy rattler rattler i'm gonna say it like that rattler uh in the artichoke garden this morning and has been intractable since I never ask about snakes. There is so much information here. We have this very specific Mrs. Burstein. A pygmy rattler sounds like extra scary just because you've got, you know, I think baby baby snakes are always, well, I don't know. This is not a baby. Maybe it sounds like a whole different thing. But like this is a narrator who knows about different types of rattlesnakes. She, in fact, goes on to talk about different markings and different venoms and all these different things. Like she's an expert in snakes, which is so rad because that's the kind of thing like Didion she's an expert in snakes because snakes are also men like snakes are I mean it's phallic but also like it's literally a word you'd be like oh he was such a snake not so much anymore but in the 60s you know it's like saying he was like a um I don't know I, I can't think of an example right now but like a, you know a, a, a dastardly fella um okay um so you have this beginning that is this idea that's very complicated. We It turns out that um, Mrs. Burstein is someone who is taking care of her in the mental hospital. And the artichokes are supremely Californian. I mean, it's really a nod to the Central Valley. It's a nod to California as being kind of one of the big bread baskets of the, of the United States and as a, being sort of, um, you know, this incredible uh, like productive land, but also an artichoke is a thistle, an artichoke, um, you know, it, it's very difficult to grow. Well, not out in those big fields in the, in the, in California, apparently you can grow anything, but, um, there, there is this sense of, of an artichoke as being very kind of rarefied and very Californian. Rattlesnakes also is a very Western thing. So you have all of this complexity in this very first sentence that tells us so much about Mariah, Whereas, um, you know, the idea of this was August, the ocean warm, getting warmer every day, um, really, it, it, it's just not, it doesn't have the same richness of this kind of prose. Okay, we're going to move on to check out the richness of the prose in, um, in uh, this book right here, which is Slow Days, Fast Company. I was losing the thread. I got it back. Okay, here's the opening of Eve Babbitt's uh, Slow Days, Fast Company. This is a love story and I apologize. It was inadvertent. But I want it clearly understood from the start that I don't expect it to turn out well. So even the very beginning of this, um, and the punctuation is incredible. So this is a love story and I apologize. I mean, then we have a semicolon. Th that is so funny. This is a love story and I apologize. So first of all, it's a first person narration and you have um, right away, you have a certain amount of intimacy because a first person narration implies that the reader is you. So you have I and you. The, the, the narrator here is, is really directly addressing us. I apologize. It's also, um, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, like a hackneyed expression, but it is a, a well-worn kind of way that we communicate. So there's kind of this open, chatty kind of conversational tone at the beginning. But it's also so funny that she's apologizing for telling a love story. So you have this kind of wry humor and this kind of um, like a certain amount of snarkiness and a certain amount of kind of irony. Um, but it's also funny. So there's this kind of levity right from the start. And then you have the semicolon. It was inadvertent. So we don't know exactly what she's referring to here. I mean, I have spent so much time thinking about this. It was inadvertent can mean, for example, I mean, part of me wonders, like, editorially, like, you know, did she have a bunch of, uh, like, episodic kind of short stories that all happen to be about men, and then she's like, wait, I can actually turn these into a love story, um, and, and I can, like, you know, make it with this frame, which 
you know, you might think that that's manipulative, but that actually is delightful in my mind um, because it works. You know, I mean, I think it's very compelling the way that she has done it here. But this it was inadvertent could mean that in the sense that like she didn't set out to write a love story. But maybe as she's telling each of these episodes, she can only be thinking about, you know, this other guy. Um, so you have this sense of mystery and intrigue about why this was inadvertent. You also have a sense of everything is being inadvertent, meaning the telling of the love story is inadvertent, um, the, the falling in love is inadvertent, the way things are going to go is inadvertent. So all of these, um, you know, all of these, uh, like, valences, all of these different nuances are, are very intentional and I think are very well said. And then the next line, but I want it clearly understood from the start that I don't expect it to turn out well. Um, so you have right from the beginning here, you have, again, it can be construed as kind of a nihilism and, and sort of a despair. And, you know, when we begin the guest with uh, Emma Klein, it tells us right on the on the copy, the flap copy, um, th that, you know, she's going to be kicked out of this house. So we know right from the start that in the guest, things are not going to go well either. And certainly um, at the beginning of Play It As It Lays, once we realize that she is in a, um, you know, a mental hospital, we also have a sense of things not having gone well in her love life. So in each of these cases, you have this idea of, um, you know, of, of these people, these young women who are coming up against difficult circumstances in their love lives. And yet with the Eve Babbitts and with the Didion, we have this kind of broader, more complex, more upfront um, we know much more about these narrators right from the jump. It's just so much richer in so many ways. Okay, the uh, next thing that I want to take a look at is uh, the, the sense of place in all of these novels. So I think, again, Bibbits, <laughs> Babbitts and Didion are, are lumped together largely because of the Los Angeles connection. Uh, but I think you also can argue that all three of them can be kind of lumped together, uh, partially because of the kind of summary kind of vibes in all of these books, but also because of the social milieu. I mean, these are very much the, um, you know, the rich and beautiful and, and semi-famous and, um, you know, certainly the ultra wealthy. All of these books are criticizing to a certain extent the ultra wealthy. Uh, but they do have a very, um, all of them share, I think, a very vivid sense of place. And it's one of the things that Emma Klein does best. In the novel, she has some great descriptions of the ocean. She has some great descriptions of places like people's homes and how, you know, all of these giant houses uh, in on, you know, the fancy parts of Long Island uh, seem sort of institutional because they all are somewhat generic and the and the scale is so large. And so she, she has some really great description. Uh, there's really good description of kind of an old beach club and how, um, you know, in some ways it's kind of shabby, but how genteel that is. Really, she's a very good observer of uh, social dynamics and of these different kinds of, um, you know, subtle ways that people are, um, and very unsubtle ways in which people kind of recognize each other or see, um, you know, different people as, as sort of members of different social strata. Okay, but she also has some really beautiful um, descriptions of the, the 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 trees and when I think of <laughs> when I think of the Hamptons I think of that movie um oh I'm gonna forget the name of it it's um with Diane Keaton I love all those Diane Keaton movies and like there's a lot of people driving through very green spaces and then driving up into big giant houses so um this is kind of the Hamptons that I recognized from a Nancy Myers movie um, was also very well depicted here in, uh, in The Guest. All the back roads look the same, trees meeting overhead, making a hollow cut by the occasional driveway, roads lined by the same deep summer green, green packed so tight you couldn't see anything beyond. The houses were hidden behind hedges and gates offering no navigable landmarks. So um, I like the use of navigable. I like what this is saying here. You know, I mean, this idea of, of, of this green as packing in so tightly, I mean, there's a, a certain um, kind of resonance with money, you know, with money being green, but, but also the sense of hedges and walls and gates and not being allowed. And in fact, not even being able to see, um, you know, into the world of the ultra wealthy. All of that is so beautifully done here. And, and there is, um, 
Didion and Babbitts both, you know, have lots of really great vocabulary. We saw it in the very beginning. And by great vocabulary, I mean very effective, but often it's it's very sort of, you know, it's kind of sophisticated. Um, in this case, you know, you have this nice range, uh, everything from the beginning of the guest where we have, you know, this was August, and then you have this idea of this navigable terrain. Um, so I, I really think that Klein does a good job with the sense of, of place, uh, and I think it's one of the strong points of the novel. You can guess what I'm gonna do now though. Um, I will say that I think that both in the Didion and the Babbitts, partially because you have a much wider scope, both chronologically and also um, in terms of geographies and in terms of time, um, then you, you, I would argue, have um, a, a much sort of richer sense both of, of the place itself because, um, you know, with the, with the, with the Babbitts, for example, she's able to, you know, she's in Bakersfield and she's in Laguna Beach and she's in these different places in Los Angeles, giving us a sense of the region in a way um, where, and, you know, Emma Klein's book is meant to feel very claustrophobic. So it's meant to feel very kind of um, all the same. And you certainly have beautiful vistas with the ocean in, this, in, in, in the guest. And that is contrasted very nicely with all of the trees and whatnot. Um, but I would still argue uh, that the Didion and the Babbitts are, um, are, are still more effective in terms of evoking a sense of place and the kind of ultra wealthy that, um, that they're both trying to, uh, you know, skewer in lots of ways. Babbitts, not so much. Again, Babbitts is just kind of having fun and making incredibly astute observations about humanity. Um, okay, in Play It As It Lays, uh, we have this description of the ocean in California. Again, this tells us everything we need to know about Mariah's outlook. She drove to the beach, but there was oil scum on the sand and a red tide in the flaccid surf and mounds of kelp at the waterline. The kelp hummed with flies. The water lapped, warm, forceless. When she got back into town, she drove aimlessly down sunset, pulled into a drive-in at the corner of La Brea, and, briefly flushed into purpose by a Coca-Cola, walked barefoot across the hot asphalt to a telephone booth. That is a masterclass in evoking a place. So not only have we covered a lot of ground, literally, here, it's the, the nuance and, and the complexity of this is incredible. So you've got, um, she's going to the beach. It's the Pacific Ocean, mind you, which is usually not so much in Southern California. It's a little more tame. Um, but, but you know, the Pacific is known for being kind of wild and crazy. Um, she drives there and uh, you have the oil scum, which is, you know, scum is such a great, such a great word for just the oil industry in general. But this is the era, you know, when when there would be like lots of tar on the beach. Like you would, you know, my mom used to talk about coming, she was born in Santa Barbara, coming home from the beach with tar all over your feet. You know, there was lots and lots of oil scum um, on, the, on the sand um, and a red tide which is like lethal, I think. I think that's the thing like, you know, where you're not supposed to get in the ocean. And I think it also makes all the, um, you know, shellfish like toxic, um, in the flaccid surf. So I love the idea too of her bringing in flaccidity, um, even here when she's talking about the ocean, because of course there are several different men in this novel who are concerned about their like, you know, drug-induced erectile dysfunction. So this idea of flaccidity is something that is kind of top of mind for Mariah. Um, and then we have mounds of kelp at the waterline, the kelp hummed with flies. I mean, it is, everything about this beach visit is repellent. And, and that is partially because Mariah is stuck in this, um, in this social environment that is toxic for her. Um, she also doesn't have uh, many places to go. This is actually a good segue to a quick aside, which is that one of the things that she does so well is um, that in this book, we have a very brief but very impactful uh, allusion to Mariah's parents. So um, her father is the one who gave the title of the book, who taught her how to play craps because her father owned uh, a casino in Silver Wells, Nevada. But, um, you know, it, it, at one point he says, you know, she says, Silver Wells, Nevada, population 28, now zero. So you have this sense of, of um, you know, ghost towns and boom and bust and the West as being, um, you know, sort of a shell of itself and also of, you know, a man like 
her father as having really come upon hard times. Um, then we find out that in fact her mother um, may have killed herself in a car crash. This is relatively early on in the book, so um, I'm not spoiling too much, I hope. Um, and that she didn't, she was in New York at the time and didn't find out about it until much later because it happened on some highway out of like Tehachapi or, or Tonopah or somewhere. <laughs> I, I apologize to Tehachapi and Tonopah. I'm sure they're not at all similar. I don't even, I think they're both in Nevada. But anyway, um, but, but she didn't hear about it for a long time because the coyotes had eaten the body. Like this is the kind of detail that we know about Mariah's parents. Um, we don't, well, um, I'll, I'll get to Babbitt's parents in a second, but we don't know anything about Alex's family. We don't know anything about her backstory. We don't, I kept thinking maybe one of the things in the guests that we're going to get here is, is some indication for why Alex is so um, distanced from the world and why she is so full of ennui and, and disillusionment and why she is making literally the worst choices, like bad choice after bad choice after bad choice. And not just bad choices for herself, but bad choices that are really harmful for other people and a dog. I'm not, I mean, don't get me started. So anyway, um, you, you do have this sense of, um, in, in uh, Play It As It Lays, of a, of a real backstory that really explains everything. And not only is it um, a backstory that's very explanatory, but it's also just kind of like a whole novel unto itself. And it's, you know, a couple of paragraphs in each case, but you have a sketching of a full life or a full death, really, um, in this way that, that tells us everything we need to know about her parents and about her origin story. In Babbitt's, um, there's this excellent part where her parents um, are, are, are just really upset about Los Angeles because LACMA, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, is a, is a travesty and they don't fully appreciate Ivor Stravinsky, who also happens to be Eve Babbitt's uh, godfather. So you, you have this sense of her parents making this very quick cameo as these people who um, love Los Angeles, but also are completely um, just, they just think is despicable that, uh, that the city doesn't have kind of more culture and that can't kind of get itself together. So again, you have this very quick um, cameo, but it is a, um, it's a very telling thing. And it also really informs, you know, so much about our protagonist. We are missing that in the guest. Okay, after that whole digression about backstory, we are going to get to um, the third part, which is uh, to talk about Slow Days Fast Company and the evocation of Los Angeles in this book, which is unbelievable. So, I mean, I think most of you know this. I'm from Northern California, and Eve Babbitt says, you know, every serious uh, affair, every serious kind of love affair, like sustained adult-style love affair she had was all in San Francisco. Um, and it's like San Francisco is like some sort of like prison. Like she comes up here and she feels so adult and wise and world weary and like kind of cozy in a good way. But basically like it's way too serious and kind of moral up here. Um, and even though Los Angeles has its drawbacks, uh, every time she goes there, she feels much more at home. Um, I am generally not a huge fan of Los Angeles, uh, but I will say that I have come to really appreciate it over the years. And Eve Babbitt's is one of the reasons why because she really gives you a sense of how she has these amazing descriptions of both the Santa Anas and the torrential winds. She really embraces all of these incredible, um, you know, sort of like natural, like crazy natural elements down there um, that, that I think really make her an unusual person uh, and allow you actually to have a slightly different perspective on something like the Santa Anas. Okay. Um, going to read two quick things from Slow Days Fast Company to give you a sense of the masterful way in which uh, Babbitts talks about Los Angeles. So the Irish writer from San Francisco is encouraging her to do more work and she is just full of lethargy that she sort of blames on um, on her surroundings and it's kind of a delicious lethargy like she's actually totally fine not working and this Irish writer guy is just like oh like you have to work you have to work another quick aside uh, the audio version of um, of Slow Days Fast Company is it's really pretty good the the woman who does it at one point she does an Irish accent for this Irish writer guy and it is not great um, and I actually spent a lot of time rewinding and trying to understand what 
what other accent it sounded like to me, and I still don't fully have it, um, you know, under control. But there, it was, um, it was a very interesting kind of linguistic moment for me, but maybe not exactly um, the best Irish accent I have ever heard. Okay, so this is Eve Babbitt's narrator talking about the um, Irish guy's advice. He'd never understand about the weather, that outside it's turned pink and the jacaranda tree is magenta, and next door, the 14-year-old Mexican girl has finished her paper route and swung her long California-bred legs off her bike and now throws a frisbee at her brother's head expertly. It's so beautiful. So she just had gone through this whole thing about the bungalows where she lives and how they all look out onto this courtyard and then this jacaranda tree. She makes a quick aside that Nabokov said that if he lived in the United States, he would live in Los Angeles because of the jacaranda. Um, her descriptions of Los Angeles are just so beautiful. And I love that this, this idea of this girl getting off of the bicycle with her long tanned legs and winging a frisbee at her brother's head, comma, expertly. It's, it's funny and it's light, but it does evoke a whole community and a whole um, kind of milieu that is in a, in a physical surrounding that is so compelling. Uh, okay, here's another description by Eve Babbitts. This is at the beginning of a story called Rain. I say story because it does in some ways feel like a story collection, and yet there is definitely this through line that has everything to do with Los Angeles and also with this, um, this recipient, this lover. Um, so Rain is the name of this, and here is the first paragraph. When you feel as though you can't stand it another moment, that you'd rather be living in Siberia than go through another bleak stretch of parking lot days and smog, that you might even re-examine the possibility of San Francisco, where the view of the bay will always be before you in constant testimony to your adult wisdom. When all of that happens, it still doesn't rain. So an adage that I often mention to all you writers out there is that if you want an audience to love your character, you should show your character's weaknesses in addition to their strengths, but definitely, you know, emphasize the weaknesses. So it's very compelling that um, Eve Babbitts is not you know, she's not uh, just like disregarding everyone's criticism of Los Angeles. She's very in tune with, you know, the traffic and how gnarly that can be. And, and you know, the, the different sort of, you know, the heat and, and this idea of parking lot days and smog. And although she lots of times is talking about how beautiful um, the, the sunsets are because of the smog. But you, you do have this sense of kind of a, of a, 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 a really positive vision of Los Angeles, but also one that is kind of, um, you know, even-handed. Like she's, she's giving you the whole, the whole thing and she loves it even despite some of its shortcomings. So all of that is to say that there is a complexity with which she is describing this city and this place that we just don't really get in the guest. So I want to read one more um, description from Eve Babbitts because, again, it speaks to the breadth and also to the tone that, um, that, that, that is so different in her book uh, than actually than, than both the Didion and the Emma Klein. So she's talking about driving um, with one of her lovers uh, into Kern County up into the mountains uh, sort of east of Los Angeles. Giant sequoias cast their green smell quickly through the car, and it all happened so fast, these abrupt California changes of altitude and landscape. The old school teacher thing about how California had the lowest point in the United States, Death Valley, only 80 miles away from the highest, Mount Whitney, came traipsing in from ancient classrooms. There is so much to love here. I mean, first of all, you have just the simple fact that you're like learning something. I'm so embarrassed. I don't think that I knew that Mount Whitney, for some reason, I had Mount Whitney up in like, um, up in the Northeast, up in Washington. I don't know, again, I don't know who to blame that on. I'm just gonna, just geography in general. Maybe my memory, Maybe I'm sure someone taught me that at some point. Um, so not only do you have this beautiful idea of um, the, it came traipsing in from ancient classrooms. So again, you have this incredible breadth. There's lots of intertexts in the Eve Babbitt's book. So she talks a lot about, uh, well, not a lot, but a lot about literature. So she mentioned Nabokov wanting to move to LA, but she talks about Proust and Henry James and uh, Jane Austen and um, all of these different writers in, in a sort of um, these organic, excellent ways. It's not name droppy. It's always very effective uh, and, and it feels very sort of given and, and um, like easy, but it does 
does add again to this depth and breadth, but it also um, it gives us like a little bit of a timelessness here. Like this idea of something traipsing in from ancient classrooms feels very old, and it feels very um, like it's it, it's a very kind of not archaic exactly, but we have this very modern book that is. Um, in some ways, it's reaching backward in time in a way that I find just totally irresistible. Okay, in order to just wrap everything up, I want to just end with the idea that um, I <laughs> I really don't mean to be too harsh about the guest, but I, I do, I believe that reading is important, and I believe that the way that the things that we read can really change us and they can really, um, again, you know, be very informative in terms of how we are viewing the world and how we are moving through the world. And um, I, I just, I, wow, the guest, like if, if that's indicative, um, I, I'm just not sure what to make of it. I think today was kind of a, a, a chance for me to wrestle with what it was that was so hard for me to read. And I think, um, you know, it, it was it was very bleak and um, it was it, it didn't satisfy enough of my kind of curiosity. And to be very clear, also, I am not someone who needs to like all the characters. I love television um, where everybody's behaving badly. And, you know, Lolita is one of my favorite books of all time. And it's literally the story of a psychopath it, just committing terrible, terrible crimes. So I am not someone who, in fact, I'm someone who's not very interested in likable characters. So it wasn't that I wanted a likable narrator. Uh, it's simply that I didn't understand her and I didn't understand what I was meant to take away. Um, I like to think that like the drug use and all of the, the sort of vicissitudes and, and the trials and tribulations were not glamorized, but, but I'm a little bit worried that they were. And if they weren't meant to be glamorized, I'm just not sure what we were meant to take away from it. It wasn't sort of enough of a skewering of the ultra wealthy, um, the inconclusive nature of the ending was totally fine to me. And in fact, it didn't actually seem very inconclusive. I felt like I knew, you know, what we were meant to take away at the ending there. Um, but but I, but it wasn't very satisfying in the sense of, and, and again, I don't want a lesson. I don't want morals all kind of wrapped in a bow. And certainly, um, you know, these other two novels that we've been discussing are not like overly optimistic. They're not they're not teaching us anything and they're not trying to moralize um but even play it as it lays ends on a hopeful note it, it, it just it does um and, and as does the the babbits so um i just i i'm i'm concerned i'm concerned about you know i'm hoping that literature has some power and i'm concerned um about about this uh you know sort of thinking that the guest is on par with these books that for me are are much richer and much um, more rewarding and much more kind of edifying in terms of literature, but also in terms of the messages that one is taking away. So thank you for tuning in and, um, you know, check back to the Vox page to learn more about Babbitts because I'm going to have a whole entire lecture about Slow Days Fast Company. Uh, and uh, who knows? Maybe we'll have to dig back into Play It As It Lays, which we did back in the bookstore a million years ago. Um, or maybe I'll have to dig in further to The Guest. There's certainly a lot to recommend that book and certainly a lot um, that I could dig into. But what I really wanted to do was kind of uh, make sense in my mind of this comparison of these three writers. And hopefully that's been interesting for you too. Happy reading. Happy reading.